0: BlueNile.com.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: We have an amazing flash sale offer this week. You can get a new scientist subscription for just £99 for the year. You can choose either bundle or digital for this price. That's a massive saving of £135 on the normal subscription price. And if you're not in the UK, there are similar flash sale offers in your region. Go to newscientist.com slash flash sale to take advantage of this offer. that's just available for this weekend. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the top news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, podcast editor.
1: And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we're also joined by New Scientist reporter Michael LePage. Hello, Michael.
0: Hello. Coming up on the show today, we're exploring what sort of protection we can expect against variants of coronavirus. We go to the Amazon to hear monkeys. And we're discussing what might happen to food supplies if we do geoengineering and screen sunlight from the atmosphere.
1: We've also got an amazing story
2: of a blind man whose sight has been partially restored and this. This is a revolution actually that's happening in archaeology. It's not just about having another tool in the toolkit. It is going to be revolutionary because it is going to change the way archaeology works and the way that archaeology asks its questions. We're talking to anatomist and TV
0: archaeologist Alice Roberts about the revolution taking place in archaeology. Before all that though, a word from our sponsor Ryman Prize.
3: Entries for the 2021 Ryman Prize are now open. The Ryman Prize is a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement that enhances quality of life for older people. It's a New Zealand prize, but it's open to anyone in the world who wants to enter. For details of how to enter, go to rymanprize.com.
1: Now, Michael, you've been looking at the issue of vaccine resistance. And this is going to be more of a concern as the new variant that originated in India, sometimes called the Indian variant, B16172, spreads more and more. Here in the UK, it's likely to become the dominant form.
3: Yes. Uh, it's clear that the coronavirus is evolving to evade the immune protection from natural infections, which also helps it evade vaccine protection. So we've we've known for a while that the vaccines are less effective against many of the new variants. And the big question is how much vaccine evasion there is with this new variant from India.
1: But a study here in the UK found there was only a small drop in vaccine effectiveness against symptomatic infections. So that's good news, right?
3: Well, that's a spin that was put on it. But I think it depends on your starting point. So if you're thinking that the Indian variant might completely evade vaccines, then yes, it is good news. But the bottom line is that there's a small drop in efficacy for people who've had two doses and quite a big drop for one dose. So that's for both vaccines. It's down from around 50 percent to around 33 percent. So we've already seen vaccine efficacy fall against the UK variant. And now we've seen this further fall with the Indian variant. That's bad news, especially as even in the UK, not everyone's been vaccinated yet. And across the world, most people have yet to get their first dose.
1: So do we know yet if that means that even people who have been vaccinated could still get seriously ill and potentially even die if they're exposed to this variant?
3: There's definitely a risk. How bad it is, we don't know yet. So there are lots of reasons to think that the vaccines still provide very high protection against severe illness and death, even if they're not quite as good at preventing infections in the first place. But I spoke to Ravi Gupta at Cambridge University, who says he's heard anecdotal reports from India of people dying despite being vaccinated, though he did tell me this was mostly people who had only one dose.
0: That is quite alarming.
3: Well, I think scientists have always been clear that no vaccine provides 100% protection, but I don't think this message has really got through to most members of the public.
1: And this isn't just about how well vaccines protect us as individuals anyway, right?
3: No, so we're already hoping that the vaccines can stop the coronavirus spreading altogether. That is, that we can achieve herd immunity, which means there might be small outbreaks, but we're not going to see widespread outbreaks anymore. So the, the problem with these new variants is there can be a double whammy. Firstly, if vaccines are less effective against the new variant, you need to vaccinate a higher proportion of people to reach that herd immunity threshold. The second problem is that if a variant is more transmissible, it raises the threshold higher, making it even harder to achieve.
1: And do we know yet that the Indian variant is more transmissible?
3: That's still not certain, but it does look likely. Okay, Michael, give us the take-home message from all this. Well, I think, as always, if you've not been vaccinated or had only one dose of a vaccine, you should still be taking precautions to avoid becoming infected with the Indian variant or any other And even if you had two doses, I think it's best to still be careful, at least until we have a better idea of how well the vaccines protect against severe illness and death due to this new Indian variant. And as always, it's not just about protecting yourself. It's also about protecting other people by ensuring you don't spread the virus around.
1: Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. And this week, it's the red-handed tamarind, which is a species of monkey that lives in the Amazon.
0: Yeah, and the interesting thing about this is how it changes its accent depending on where it lives.
1: It has an accent?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's play some clips. First, we're going to hear the call of the pied tamarin, which is a related species to the red-handed tamarin. Now, sometimes red-handed tamarins move to areas that are populated by pied tamarins and they change their calls, like apparently to fit in more with the Pied Tamarins. So here's the usual call of the red handed (laughs) tamarind. Okay, and here it is when it moves to the neighbourhood of Pied Tamarins. Okay, let's hear that again. So next to each other, so there's Pied Tamarinds and the accent changed red handed tamarinds. you can tell they're very similar, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's subtle, but yes, yeah. Yeah. All
0: right, well, look, um, this is a perfect uh, sort of experiment because you two are both living in regions where you didn't grow up. So have you found your accent changes and does it change when you go back? Tiff, does your accent change if you're in the UK or if you're in the US?
1: Yeah, I think it does. Or, I mean, you'd certainly, my family and friends back in the US would definitely tell you that I sound a bit different and... um, (laughs) pronounce my t's more i think
3: michael what about you do you have a did you used to have a stronger accent I, I oh yes i definitely did i i was brought up in south africa but moved to the uk when i was 17 and i think many people might not detect the south african accent that much anymore <laughs> because it was so long ago.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, people often find their accent gets stronger when they're at home visiting their parents or something, and they lose the accent. For example, you know, you often hear of people moving to London and uh, sort of maybe deliberately trying to lose their, their regional accent.
1: Or really embracing it like, like Madonna did, I think, was the <laughs> famous example.
0: <laughs> so... And that worked out so well.
1: Yeah. (laughs) so when when we do this kind of thing are 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 we basically just doing it to fit in
0: well uh for the monkeys they seem to be doing it to be better understood so they they call uh, the red-handed tamarins call in the accent of pied tamarins so that they can better establish that this is that here they are this is their territory and that means that they'll avoid getting into fights
4: Let's
1: take a short break. Time for a word from Jim Al-Khalili.
0: Hi, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, interrupting your podcast to tell you about What I Believe, a podcast by Humanist UK, exploring the values, convictions, and opinions of humanists in the public eye. Each week you'll get to listen to scientists like Richard Dawkins, Helen Chersky, Alice Roberts and me discussing our approaches to life. New episodes go live each Thursday and are available on all the usual places you get your podcasts. Curious? Subscribe and listen to the What I Believe podcast today. And now a word from our sponsor, Tiny Forest.
4: Environmental challenges such as flooding, biodiversity loss and heat stress are becoming increasingly prevalent in our cities. A tiny solution has the power to explore these challenges and help transform our urban areas. It's called Tiny Forest. Find out why these tiny forests have the potential to be super powerful on the Earthwatch Europe website, earthwatch.org.uk forward slash scientist. A tiny forest is a nature-based solution, a wild green space packed into an area the size of a tennis court. Although tiny, they bring all the benefits of a forest, connecting people with nature, helping to mitigate the impacts of climate change and providing a home for wildlife. A diverse mix of native trees is planted densely, encouraging rapid growth. In the UK, Earthwatch is pioneering tiny forests. We engage local communities in the planting and looking after of the forest so that we can assess the benefits tiny forests can bring to our cities and communities. Go to earthwatch.org.uk forward slash new scientists to find out how you can help Earthwatch Europe to transform our cities.
1: Now, we've talked about geoengineering quite a few times on the podcast. That's the idea of mounting deliberate planet scale interventions to try and cool the climate. There are lots of different ways you could do this. And one of the most thought through is solar geoengineering, where you put stuff into the atmosphere to filter out the sunlight reaching the planet and so cool us all down.
0: Yeah, and though it's the best understood, there's never been any experimental test yet of this, even at a small scale. And even the proposed test of the equipment that might be used to do the test, to do the experiment, has been delayed again and again. And so this experiment, which is going to release a small amount of of calcium carbonate into the atmosphere and measure what happens, won't happen now until next year. Um, And it's been delayed for years because of, you know, there's oversight committees and regulatory approval needed. And, you know, there is obviously a massive concern, and that's mostly that, you know, we might dash towards solar geoengineering when it's never going to be the solution to the problem of climate change. But it it is frustrating still that we can't get this basic research done.
1: But there has been a lot of modelling of what might happen, and that's what we want to talk about this week. One of the other concerns over geoengineering, and one of the fears, is that the cure might be worse or as bad as the problem. That is, you could screen out sunlight to tackle climate change, but then cause flooding or drought in different parts of the world, for example. And that could then completely alter yields from agriculture and lead to food shortages. Basically, it's no good cooling the planet if you end up with mass famine.
0: (laughs) Right. And the effect of solar geoengineering on crops hasn't really been assessed until now. And that's what we're talking about today. So there's a paper just published in the journal Nature Food, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which sounds like a like sounds like a food magazine, doesn't it? I would quite like to subscribe to that. Um Nature Food, uh, and the paper models the effect of solar geoengineering on agricultural yields.
1: So what happens or what do the models predict will happen?
0: They've looked at the expected yield of six major crops that are grown globally. So maize, sugarcane, wheat, rice, soya, and cotton. And they look at what will happen under different scenarios you know, different things that will happen if you conduct solar geoengineering. And that's things like reducing heat stress, changing the direct and diffuse sunlight, changes of rainfall, humidity. And it's also looked at the impact of reduced carbon dioxide fertilisation if we cut emissions, because, you know, all the extra CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere has a fertilising effect on crop growth. And overall, the model shows that crop yields increase by about 10% with solar geoengineering and decrease about 5% under emissions reductions.
1: So based on this analysis, it looks like food production could actually become more efficient um, and improve under certain geoengineering schemes. So to some extent, that helps us begin to answer the question of whether the cure is worse than the cause, right? Yeah.
0: Yes, definitely. I mean, yeah, of course, it's very far from resolved. And and it's a frightening scenario to get into. But very slowly, the evidence that we have is starting to suggest that geoengineering might be something that we need to do. Uh, But of course, we really have to do those experiments and lots of experiments. Don't we, Michael?
3: Yes, I, I think we absolutely should be exploring the geoengineering and doing those experiments. And we also we've been seem to be ri- ridiculously overcautious about even small-scale experiments. <laughs> I mean, we're already pumping all kinds of pollution into the atmosphere. That is a form of geoengineering. Climate change is geoengineering. Every time we launch a rocket, that's effectively a mini geoengineering experiment. So why are we so cautious about doing it just when we call it geoengineering? I don't quite understand. But on the flip side, I I do think there's a real danger of geoengineering being seen as an alternative to emission cuts rather than as an an additional measure to to help us out. And the danger is if we geoengineer and CO2 levels keep rising, if we then find out there's some big problem with that geoengineering, we're then sort of stuck in, in a quandary where we're either stuck with the bad effects of the geoengineering, or if we stop geoengineering, we're going to have really rapid warming. So it it is a potential trap.
1: That's our sci-fi alert, which means we have a story in the news that has already been depicted in science fiction. Rowan?
0: Yeah, this is about a 58-year-old man from Brittany in France who was blind, but now he can see. Uh, He's had his vision restored, uh, at least slightly. Uh, He had retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic disease when the retina gradually deteriorates and the light-detecting cells die. So he went blind. Uh, But he's been treated with optogenetics, and this is the first time this method has been used in humans.
1: Right, so optogenetics is the method of genetically encoding neurons so they can be turned on and off with light. By shining light on these cells, we can activate them and see what they do. And it's been brilliant as a lab technique, but using it on people is more difficult because you have to shine a light directly into the brain, like onto yeah. the cells themselves to make yeah. it work.
0: Yeah. And, and that's why blindness is a really good thing to treat because you have light naturally going in through the eye and directly onto the optic nerve. So you don't have to open up the skull and put a fibre optic cable onto the brain. So what they've done with this French guy is they injected the nerve cells of the retina with a gene originally found in algae and it makes the cells then fire in response to amber light. So um, this guy had to wear goggles with cameras and processors that turn ordinary light into amber wavelengths, and that boosts the signal so it's detected by the altered cells.
1: And then he was able to see?
0: Yeah, gradually it came back. And First he could see the black and white stripes of a pedestrian crossing, Um, and then he was able to see things like a phone and furniture and a door um, but he can't. He can't recognize faces yet.
1: Yeah. Even so, God, that's incredible. And yeah is is the hope that this will just keep getting better for him.
0: Yeah, it, they expect that the brain will remodel itself gradually as the new cells continue to fire and connect and reconnect and send information. But it's doubtful he'll ever be able to read again. For example, it won't get that that good.
1: But still, even this um, level of restoration of his sight must be absolutely extraordinary for him.
0: Yeah, if you're blind, any, any sort of vision is, is amazing. As for the sci-fi, I'm going to go with Geordie LaForge from Star Trek The Next Generation. He is always the go-to character for when we want to talk about restoration of vision by scientific means.
1: Next up, we're going to hear about the revolution taking place in archaeology as techniques from molecular biology and extracting ancient DNA are absorbed into the practice.
0: Yeah, I've been chatting with Alice Roberts about this. She's a medical doctor and an anatomist, and she's Professor of the Public Engagement in Science at the University of Birmingham. She's President of Humanists UK, and you may have seen her on lots of TV archaeology programmes. And she's got a fabulous new book out called Ancestors, the Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials. Uh, And I talked to her about that, and I started by asking her what's going on at the moment as archaeology adapts to modern genetics.
2: What's so exciting at the moment is that there's all these questions and debates that archaeologists have had for decades, if not centuries. And actually, we we just haven't had the data to be able to resolve those. So now we're into this era of ancient genomics, we're seeing some amazing revelations coming through and particularly about population movements, mobility in the past, all of that sort of thing so it's really transforming our ideas of of periods like for instance the neolithic when we see the origin of farming the bronze age as well when we see a big culture change and there's always been a question about whether that goes along with big population movements and now we can actually tell because we've we've got the dna of these people so it's quite extraordinary so the book is about the merging or the the fusion of uh, of archaeology and genetics but it's also about key sites and key burials in the past, which tell us something about that period of history, tell us something about what lifestyles were like in that period. You can detect uh, relationships between people, for instance, and we've seen a slew of uh, those results coming out recently, showing us that in some Neolithic tombs, we've, we've definitely got related individuals uh, being buried together. So I think a pair of brothers in Trumpington Meadows in Cambridgeshire father and a, 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 and a daughter in, in one of the Irish tombs and from one of the individuals from Newgrange, evidence of that individual being the product of incest as well. So we're, we're finding out details about people's lives which are, which are just astonishing. Yeah. You know, there's no way of getting those details apart from through the DNA. This is a revolution actually that's happening in archaeology. It's not just about having another tool in the toolkit it is going to be revolutionary because it is going to change the way archaeology works and the way that archaeology asks its questions. And it's also not just about human genomes. So Swali's part in the project is to look at the metagenomes, to look at all the genomes, all the DNA of the diseases that people are carrying around with them. And we're going to see some amazing insights coming coming from that. I mean, we're already picking up on the fact that um, the plague had reached Britain in the 6th century. So we've already had publications relating to that. And I think we'll we'll learn so much more about patterns of disease in the past.
0: A lot of the new findings we're looking at or we're discovering are changing our understanding or our perception of women in Neolithic and Bronze Age times and of gender as well.
2: Yeah, particularly in the Iron Age, there's been um, a lot of interest in this because I think we have to be quite careful when we when we look at graves, not to leap to conclusions about the um, the biological sex and then the the, the gender, the kind of personal uh, expression of that sex, um, and also social expression. You know, we're we're a very sociable um, species, so so how we express our own identity is shaped by the culture that we're in, as well, of course. And um, in in the past, there's been a tendency to leap to conclusions and especially to say oh well if you know somebody's buried with jewelry it was a it was obviously a woman and if somebody uh, was buried with a sword it's obviously a man and if somebody's buried in a chariot that must have been a man as well but certainly amongst these iron age burials we've got plenty that are women buried in in chariots and then I think you have to do a bit of special pleading if you if you don't believe that women are leaders and charioteers you know you have to have to say well there must be some other reason why these women are maybe they're buried in their dead husband's chariot or something but i think the much more simple explanation is that they were you know high status in their communities they were charioteers and that's what we're seeing expressed in their graves And in fact, that is what the Romans told us as well. So the Romans tell us a lot about the um, Iron Age people of of Britain, not very much of it complimentary. Um, And so, you know, we have to take some of it with a pinch of salt. And, you know, they do want to portray us as barbarians in need of being civilised. But one of the reasons in which we were desperately in need of being civilised was that um, the ancient Britons used to have female leaders, which (laughs) is obviously awful. Uh, (laughs) And they drank undiluted wine. Which is, which is just as bad. Oh. <laughs> um, so I think we've got these clues that there were powerful women. Uh, I mean, you know, everybody's heard of Boudicca, or Boudicca, as we should more properly call her. So I think it's, I think it's very reasonable to assume that, we, you know, we did have these powerful women in the Iron Age. But then actually you've got other periods where you've got similar um, kind of misconceptions at play, I think. And we just have to get away. We have to try to get away from our own misconceptions now as well and our own cultural lens. So we've got to try to just take the evidence as it stands, and then think about what that evidence could mean, rather than thinking about our own culture and thinking about how sex and gender are playing out in our own culture.
0: I've got to ask about the, um, the goth cave and the cannibalism there. That's in Somerset, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. It's in, in the Mendips, um, in Cheddar Gorge, in fact. And these remains are interesting, because I, I think whenever, whenever I see headlines about ancient cannibalism, I'm always slightly skeptical because there are lots of reasons why you might want to deflesh a body, which may not be obvious to us today. I mean, I think we just rush to conclusions going, oh, well, it must be people eating people. But there are plenty of cultures around the world that have mummified people, that have defleshed people, and then bones are kept, and bones then become kind of sacred objects. So you have to be quite careful about the evidence that you're looking at. And then, you know, having started off being very sceptical, I went to the Natural History Museum and spoke to Dr. Sylvia Bello, who'd been examining all of these remains from Goff's cave incredibly carefully and came away thinking beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is definitely cannibalism. And the reason for that is that it's not just defleshing. So it's not just that you've got cut marks on bones where you can see that the body's been taken apart at the joints and, and flesh has been cut away. But also things like long bones being smashed open. And if long bones are being smashed open, that means somebody wants to get at the marrow inside mm. them. Which which makes it seem much less like a you know the production of a of a relic yeah. than actually just food. But then perhaps there is something ritualistic about it because amongst those remains there's this really peculiar skull. And in fact it's just the top of the skull, where the bottom of the skull has been broken away and it hasn't just done that naturally. Um, you know, sometimes you get all sorts of patterns of breakage in the ground, but this one has been very deliberately broken, chipped away at around the top to make the top quite level. I say the top because we imagine it was then turned upside down to form a kind of bowl or a skull cup. You look at that and think, well, maybe this is a ritual object. And then, of course, um, some archaeologists like Miles Russell will go, well, if you've, if you've eaten a body, you need something to drink the blood out of. Or- <laughs> It is gruesome. It really is gruesome, I think, to us today um, to to think of that going on in Somerset. But there you go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Feasting on the the flesh of the people from Wiltshire. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Alice. Um, So we chatted for ages, actually, and there's loads more in her book, Ancestors the Prehistory of Britain in Seven Burials. It's fascinating stuff.
1: That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest, Michael the Page, and thanks to all of you for listening. And just to mention, this week in the magazine, we've got some great features, including one about motivation and how you can find more of it if you're lacking a bit.
0: Uh, And definitely get motivation to go to newscientist.com slash flash sale for this amazing £99 subscription. Definitely worth taking advantage of. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.